Welcome back to another episode of Mindful, Beautiful, and Thriving. Once again, I'm Krupa. And I'm Anisha. Today we'll be continuing our podcast series on body dysmorphia and eating disorders with an interview with a child psychiatrist. Today's guest is Dr. Lina Kanzode. Lina, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Can you tell us a little bit about the work you do? So as far as what I do for work, I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist. So I work with children and teens you know, as little as three years to up to 18 year olds. And I do see some young adults as well in my practice. And so my role is primarily to do uh, evaluations for psychological symptoms, such as anxiety, depression, often things like ADHD. Mm -hmm. So once I do the assessment, I also weigh in on if medication is needed or not. If I don't feel the need, I always almost recommend adding therapy and the and make recommendations for supports from school. And, you know, we call it psychosocial interventions. So usually we try to get the help for the child as much as possible using psychological and social interventions and try to avoid medication. And that really can happen if we pick things earlier on. The more we delay, then usually things start to get worse. And that's when the medication comes in. And so Often when people come to me, especially when they are referred by their therapist or primary care doctor and have been dealing with symptoms for a long time, often when they come to me, I'm having to prescribe medication to help them get through that rough patch sooner than later. Um, Thank you for telling us a little about the work you do. Um, We're definitely very interested in finding out what it is that you do specifically with eating disorder patients. So kind of in reference to that, we recently interviewed a teen who has struggled with an eating disorder. And so we're really curious to learn about the different treatments for eating disorders. So would you be able to tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. So the treatment for eating disorder is uh, rather complicated in short. It is because, you know, we need a whole village, like they say, to raise a child the same way we need a whole treatment team to really fight against this illness of eating disorder. So usually the team entails a few different providers with few different backgrounds and expertise. So more than often, kids usually come to their primary care doctor or their pediatrician as the first step, and they are the ones who are monitoring their weight loss and monitoring their pulse and blood pressure and looking at how the nutrition is you know, impacting those numbers. And so generally they are the ones who make that diagnosis. And then they refer the team to a nutritionist to get support around nutrition. The other team member they refer people to is a therapist who do a specialized type of therapy and the type of therapy that's really well-known and well-researched in eating disorder is known as FBT, family-based therapy. And then, you know, there is also often a child psychiatrist like myself involved, particularly if there are additional conditions besides the eating disorder, like anxiety disorder or depression, that the pediatrician is feeling like needs to be also addressed. And sometimes I don't get involved in the very like first line of referral off the bat. The first people they go to are usually a nutritionist and the therapist and the pediatrician continues to monitor the teen every week or every other week, monitoring their weight and seeing if they are making progress with those treatments. And often it's the therapist or the nutritionist who, if they are starting to get to know the patient more 
they start to understand, oh, there's maybe underlying anxiety disorder or depression along with this. And they are the ones who ended, end up referring them to me. Thanks for telling us that. It seems like there's definitely a lot of variables and people involved. I'm glad that we could talk about this because I know that that's going to be very important information for our listeners and even Anisha and me to know. Can you tell us how you work with these medical professionals like the nutritionist, therapist, and pediatrician? Yeah, good question. So, you know, given that we all are busy in different kinds of work we do, we still try to communicate and find a common like way that could work. So the most common way we do that is actually setting up a secure email account for all three or four team members to communicate about the client since we have some confidential information about their medical parameters and psychological stuff. Um, we usually do that because that's the best way with busy people to get hold of them and kind of keep them updating on what progress or what hurdles each one of us is noticing in our work with them. Often we also set up like a team call where we set up a time that works for all of us and we do a conference call and talk about the client. Sometimes if we are dealing with a particularly more difficult family where we are making very little progress, we also often plan for a like call with the family and the whole treatment team together so we all can encourage them to work towards making the progress. So you mentioned this team a couple of times, and you also talked about how it takes a village. So just relating to that, you already talked a little bit about your role, your specific role as a child psychiatrist on the team, but would you be able to talk about any common challenges that occur maybe while working with a patient as uh, with an eating disorder or with the team? Yes. So, uh, like I said, you know, often if they are coming to me, there is more stuff going on other than the eating disorder. And so it is a very difficult journey for the patient as well as their family to really go through this treatment. The journey is really challenging because a lot of the stuff that the child wants is kind of taken away initially. And the job of the team is also to empower the parents to do that. And it's very hard for parents to do that because they don't want their child to be unhappy and take away privileges that they used to enjoy. It's like a tough love kind of approach. So we have to empower them. So they are kind of already a little tired in this process. And when they come to me, this decision about yet again, like a big decision to make about starting a medication to treat the underlying anxiety and depression which often seem to be the drivers for eating disorder. So that tends to be very challenging for them. And I have to do a lot of education and talking about why that's important and how that's going to help the child. And so that seems to be one of the biggest challenges. And then once we even get on the path of the medication, you know, it is hard for them to, again, get another provider and have this full schedule of appointments with different team members. So there is a lot of commitment that is needed in terms of time, in terms of energy. And so it is an exhausting process often, but it pays off. That's the challenge, like to keep them in treatment, because there are times when if the child is making some progress, then the parents feel like, oh, yeah, you know, we got this. And then maybe it's too early to kind of cut the cord. So those are some of the challenges. 
Well, it definitely seems like it's a very large commitment for both the patient's entire family and for your team. Um, I know earlier you mentioned how your job is to provide medication if necessary. So during the treatment, what kind of medication do you use and how exactly does it help in the recovery? That's a great question. So as I was mentioning maybe briefly earlier that the understanding we have about why and how eating disorder develops is that there's almost always an underlying anxiety brewing for maybe some years or a few months. That seems to be a very common kind of underlying risk factor for a lot of people. And, you know, if you think about it, anxiety is in some ways all about control. So a lot of the times when people feel like they have little or no control over other things in their lives, they start to then focus on this food as one thing that they can control in their life. And if it's compounded by their vulnerability of having poor body self-image or body dysmorphia, then that becomes even more so the case that they actually go on this path of like, okay, I'm going to try to eat less or restrict and see, and then, oh, I look thinner and I look better. And then it's a vicious cycle. It just reinforces this process. And then, you know, there is also understanding that, you know, eating disorder slowly starts to like encroach, you know, an anxious person. A lot of these kids also have like a lot of perfectionistic kind of tendencies. So they, you know, like to do this even perfectly. So yes, if I'm making this progress with weight loss, I'm going to get to X number or I'm going to want to look a certain way. So those are the underlying vulnerabilities that eating disorder takes advantage of and starts to really grow. And because you're not having adequate nutrition, you're also not thinking right. So your thinking gets impacted because of that. And, you know, once the anxiety starts to also build, your thinking is further skewed and distorted. So all these things culminate and let the eating disorder thrive, basically. And what comes to the surface is mostly this like, oh, my kid is not eating weight loss. And, um, you know, a lot of the times the underlying trouble with what's got them there is missed. And so part of the treatment, of course, once we get that medical stability to restore the weight and gain, you know, some of the stability on the vital signs, pulse and blood pressure, then as we are peeling the layers, as the family is starting to work with the therapist, we are trying to see there's a lot of underlying anxiety and depression. And so the medication we use for is actually to treat that underlying anxiety and depression. There is no medication for an eating disorder. Okay. So the medication is actually for those conditions that are either driving it or often they are comorbid or they coexist with this eating disorder. So these medications are known as antidepressants. And I can give a long spiel on that, but in the interest of time, I think I'll leave it at that. There are antidepressant group of medications that have been shown to make a lot of difference. Even though they are known as antidepressants, they work both for anxiety and depression because the neurotransmitter or the neurochemical that's involved in our mood and anxiety regulation is the same. So, you know, often people think, oh, I don't have depression. And sometimes people with eating disorder don't have depression off the bat. Usually depression may develop once they are in the thick of the eating disorder and they are feeling powerless to fight against it. So we use the medications from that group and it just allows the person to gain a little bit more clarity in thinking and not feel anxious about eating 
and feel more like they can be more compliant and you know they are able to fight that anxiety that comes as a result of eating thank you i think that's really definitely very helpful to know and i i know that it did clear up a lot of things for me i know i had a misconception that maybe medication could treat eating disorders so i didn't really understand that anxiety and depression tend to coexist with eating disorders so that's really interesting for me to know um, would you be able to tell us a little bit about the costs of these treatments and are there any ways for low-income families to pay for the treatments? Sure. So I'll tell you about what the reality is in the world we live about these treatments and the cost. And then, of course, there are also ways to support low-income families. So what we have currently is, especially in the expensive, high-status area we live in in the Bay Area, a lot of the providers, such as me, the therapist and the nutritionist, often are not part of insurance panels. And so we are considered as out-of-network providers. So when the families come into treatment, they are usually having to pay a little bit out of their pocket because when you are an out-of-network provider, your insurance covers only part of the treatment cost, and then there is a remaining balance that you have to pay out of pocket. So, you know, a lot of the families who are, you know, doing well financially also find it to be a stretch because you're actually seeing four different providers. So the pediatrician often is covered by your insurance, and sometimes some nutritionists are covered by the insurance, but most of the times the therapist and the psychiatrist are not. And so it does over time add to the cost, but there are ways to work with the insurance. There is um, what we call as single case agreement that a lot of the families who are actually financially not as well to do, they can fight with their insurance and say, hey, we don't have in-network providers through our insurance that are able to provide this quality care. But we have these people within the ex miles radius we live in and they are out of network for us so make an arrangement or agreement with us that you would cover the full 100 percent cost that we are going to pay for these services with these people so often insurance then allows or makes that arrangement sometimes you know people like me i can speak for myself and i know maybe some therapists also do that we often slide our scale so if we charge X amount, we try to lower the cost for the, each visit because we understand it's kind of tough for the family to afford so much care. And so that's one way we work around it. There are, of course, other resources in the area, such as a Stanford Hospital and Clinics has a special eating disorder clinic. And so all the providers working under them or in that clinic actually are what we call as in-network providers. So they can provide this whole comprehensive care. They have the whole team under their roof who can work with you. So that's one other place to get care. And similarly, I would think UCSF and other you know, hospitals in the area have similar kind of setups where they do provide care that's covered by the insurance. Uh, thank you for telling us about all of that. Um, it seems like a pretty complicated process, and I'm glad that our listeners can find these resources available, even if they're having trouble paying for them, like the Stanford Hospital and the clinics that you mentioned. 
Um, for our last question, we just wanted to wrap it up with asking if you have any advice that you would give to a teen or anyone who's dealing with an eating disorder. So first and foremost advice is that if you are a youth who's even like dealing with a little bit of body dysmorphia and there's been a little bit of this movement that you've had where you're starting to feel like I'm starting to cut back on my calories, I'm starting to be more picky about what I eat, or I'm starting to exercise more, or, you know, there are times I feel like I ate too much and I need to go and throw up. You know, all these are just like warning signs of an eating disorder kind of trying to sneak in. And so even if you're in that very early stage, um, I think it's really important to get help to talk to your parents or talk to a friend or counselor, somebody who can then guide you and refer you to the right person to start working with. This condition, like I said, you know, it doesn't like develop overnight. It usually takes weeks and months to for this thing to develop. So the sooner we can catch this, the easier is the process of recovery. So you know, if you're able to like catch it at that stage where you're not even into this whole routine of like, oh, I have to not eat this and that, and you're barely starting to get into that groove, you can actually avoid going to all those providers and all those treatment team members completely. All you would need to probably, you know, work with is, is your primary care doctor and get some medical monitoring and make sure you're you're okay medically and at the most just a therapist uh, who can start working on challenging those eating disorder thoughts that are starting to bother you and work on your body dysmorphia. Thank you so much for that response and everything that you've said today. I think it's it's really cleared up a lot. I know for Kirpa and I, and I think it'll really be helpful for our listeners and maybe anybody out there who's silently struggling with some some sort of eating disorder or body dysmorphia. So thank you. And with that comes the end of our interview today. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. You are listening to Mindful, Beautiful, and Thriving, a podcast series by Tharaka Foundation. As part of our youth series, we will be releasing new episodes every Friday, so make sure to continue to check those out. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and thank you so much for listening.